Before I start, I just want to acknowledge this date as 9-11, and that 21 years ago, um, very unspeakably horrible things happened. So what I'd like to do right now is just to take a moment to pray, and then we'll change gears a bit. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we are thankful that you are Lord God, and we are thankful that in the midst of tragedy that you are still sovereign. Father, we pray for those who are grieving today, who are seeking comfort, who are still reliving events that took place 21 years ago. We ask, Father, for your amazing mercy and your healing. We pray, Father, that we would be mindful of those around us, and if we might be able to offer a word of encouragement, we pray that we would really follow the prompting of your spirit. So, Lord, we acknowledge this, and we commit this day to you, and, and again, pray that you would be the God of all comfort to those who need comfort at this point. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. It's not a good transition from that, so I'll just get started. Um, this morning, I want to talk about being lost, and you might think that I'm in a bit of a rut, because I preached a sermon last year um, with, when I started out by using the children's book, The Land of Lost Things. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. It's great. Um, and I was focusing then on all the loss that we had been facing at that intense part of the pandemic. And I wanted to stress then the things that we can never lose in Christ. We certainly were facing a lot of uh, loss then, and today we are probably also facing loss. But I want to switch the focus today from what is lost to consider what it means to be lost. Being lost is never good. A few years ago, I was visiting um, very good friends of mine, Rick and Judy Bailey, and some of you may remember them. Um, they were here at Redeemer before they moved to Colorado. And whenever I visit them, they always ask me the same question. What do you want to do while you're here? And it's kind of silly for them to do that because there's only one thing that I ever want to do with the Baileys when I'm in Colorado, and that's to go hiking. <clears throat> so this one particular time I was visiting, we were hiking. We were just on the northern part of Pikes Peak in a wilderness area. We had scrambled off the path to find a great place for lunch, and we kept scrambling, and we found this perfect place for lunch and sat there enjoying it. And then all of a sudden, when it was time to go, we realized that we didn't know where the trail was. Now, the good thing about being on the side of a mountain is that you really have only two options. You can go up or you can go down. Fortunately, we decided to go down, and that was the good choice. <laughs> but I have to tell you, the 20 minutes between realizing that we didn't know where the trail was and finding the trail were very quiet. And we were all suddenly chatty and happy after we were on the trail. <clears throat> now, in this situation, at least we knew that we were lost, or at least that we were off the course. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we had a general sense of kind of how to get back on the trail. But the really scary situation is to be lost and to not know that you're lost. And in a sense, that's a situation that is a bit in the backdrop of the parables in, in Luke 15. But the real focus of these parables is on the incredible effort to find those lost objects. So the main point that I want to make this morning is pretty simple. Because God cares about the lost, he diligently searches them out. When the lost are found, there is great rejoicing. It's pretty simple. But of course, Jesus' parables are never that simple. So I want to begin by focusing on the parables. In the first parable, we have a person who owns a hundred sheep. At this point in time and in this part of the world, sheep were extremely important. 
and that's still true in many parts of the world. A flock of 100 would have been significant. 300 sheep would be considered to be a great flock, but 100's not bad. This person appears to be both the owner of the sheep and the shepherd, the one who takes care of them. It's almost certain that this shepherd would have had helpers to take care of that many sheep. Sheep were usually counted when they were herded into a sheep pen. And some of you may have seen these, but they could often be a pre-existing cave where a wall was built in front and the sheep were counted as they were herded in there at night to keep them safe. But this parable suggests that the shepherd realizes that one is missing when they're out in the open in a more, uh, probably translated like a wilderness area, grazing. So he gets somebody to look at the other 99 and he goes off to look for the lost sheep. These details are left out in this account because the focus is on the determination of the shepherd to find this one lost sheep who would not have been able to find itself its way back to the shepherd. Sheep are not terribly bright, and apparently they do not have good survival instincts. So there's almost a sense of desperation to find this sheep before it hurts itself or is attacked by a wild animal. So the shepherd diligently searches for the lost sheep. Jesus words this in such a way to imply that this is exactly what a good shepherd would do. Notice that the shepherd carries the sheep back to the rest of the flock. Now, apparently, I didn't know this, but apparently a sheep can be kind of like a dog at the end of a long walk who simply lies down and refuses to go any further. Apparently, this sheep was not cooperating in the rescue operation. So the shepherd has to pick it up and carry it back. We don't know how far that is, but a full-grown sheep is not light. So he is trudging along carrying this sheep. And this imagery is obviously trying to allude also to the other images we have of God as a shepherd who takes care of his flock, like Psalm 23. Notice the shepherd's great joy at finding this sheep. This is not a private affair. He invites his entire community to rejoice with him. The invitation to rejoice suggests that he threw a party in celebration over one sheep. It's an extravagant response. And Jesus connects this earthly event to a heavenly reality. Just as the shepherd rejoiced over finding one lost sheep, so also heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. Excuse me, still recovering here. We'll come back to the 99 righteous that are mentioned a little bit later. But I want you to notice right now on the great joy that is associated with the lost being found. Now, in the second parable, a woman loses a coin. The silver coin was probably a drachma, which would be the equivalent of a denarius, which would be the equivalent of about a day's wage. Her 10 coins probably represent all that she has. So losing one of them is a significant loss. The image that's suggested here, although not everybody agrees with this, is that she lives in a small hut or a small room that is very poorly lit. So she lights an oil lamp and searches diligently for the coin. We can all relate to this, right? It's like losing your cell phone and turning on every light in the house, looking under the sofa, looking in the cushions to find it. You're desperate until you find the cell phone. And that's what she's doing. And again, the focus is on the deliberation of her search. And like the shepherd, she has great joy 
and this is not private. She involves the entire community to rejoice with her, perhaps even throwing a party to celebrate the, the finding of her one coin. And just like the first parable, there's a heavenly uh, parallel here. Just as the woman rejoiced in finding the coin, so God's angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. In both parables, the value of the lost item is so significant that everything else is set aside until the lost item is found. Both parables focus on the determination to find the lost object and the intense rejoicing that follows when it's found, a communal celebration that has a heavenly counterpart. <clears throat> on the one hand, both parables seem pretty straightforward, but on the other hand, there's a bit more here than meets the eye. And to understand that, we need to back up and look at the larger context of these parables. When I teach my students about parables, I always stress that they need to focus on the parable's audience. This is probably the single most important thing to understanding a parable. Who is the parable directed to? And who else is listening to it? In verse 1, we read, in a slightly different translation, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. Coming near to listen implies that they were intentional in wanting to hear what he had to say. They had probably heard him before, and they wanted to hear more. He seemed to speak to their hearts. He was offering them good news. There's a little bit of hyperbole here. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming. But this is emphasizing Jesus' popularity, which contributes to the response of the Pharisees and the scribes. If we go back a little bit further to the very end of Luke 14, not in our, our reading today, Luke 14 ends with, let anyone with ears to hear listen. That's such a funny expression. What else are ears for? But it's making the distinction between simply hearing and listening. And so if we look in a literary perspective, we see that it's the tax collectors and the sinners who are listening to what Jesus has to say. It's also interesting that a little bit further back in Luke 14, we get this parable about a really, really fancy banquet. And all the really important people got invitations. But when the time came for the banquet, they all found really not so good excuses to not show up. Now, this would have been incredibly disrespectful to the host. But what does he do? He sends his servants out to go bring in all the poor, the disfigured, the homeless, the addicts. They are the ones who come to his banquet. People who would not have been considered worthy of such an invitation are the ones who actually show up. And there is a profound connection between that parable and the listeners to these parables. Now back to our passage. You've probably heard before a little bit about tax collectors, that they were especially despised at the time because they could often be Jews who were working for the Romans. And even worse than that, they were collecting taxes or customs. Some things never change, huh? Um, they may have been willing to do this because they were desperate, or maybe they were greedy and corrupt. Um, they had it, often had a reputation for taking just a little bit extra on the side for their own needs. 
They were not helping their communities. And in fact, in many respects, they were tearing down their communities. So notice that they have a slightly different category. There are sinners and tax collectors. Now the category of sinners probably also includes Jews, but these are Jews who don't have the same uh, intention to comply with religious or dietary or purity rituals, the, the, the ones that were prescribed in the Mosaic Law. And likely, um, and we know this just from a lot of the, the writings of Jews at that time, this is what we consider what sinners who had, did not have a high view or high regard for the Mosaic Law. So this is probably the main reason why the Pharisees and the scribes were unhappy. Jesus was welcoming those into his presence who apparently had no regard for the Mosaic Law. And not only was Jesus welcoming them, but he was eating with them, which implied that he was accepting them. He was treating them as equals. He was inviting them into the kingdom. In this way, it seemed that Jesus himself did not have a high regard for the law. Now, there have been a lot of characterizations of the Pharisees, many of which are not true and some of which are just absolutely not helpful. They were not pious legalists who cared only about fulfilling every teeny tiny little part of the law. Theologically, Pharisees and Jesus were basically on the same page. Um, the common stereotype, uh, excuse me, they both were on the same page with regard to affirming the spiritual realm and acknowledging the resurrection of the dead. Both had a high view of the law. Now, I'm going to borrow from our dear brother, Scott McKnight, and talk about it this way, that there's the common stereotype that the Pharisees are like conservatives and Jesus is the progressive. But here is what's really interesting. On many issues, Jesus is far more conservative than the Pharisees. You can just take, for example, the issue of divorce. The Pharisees would have allowed multiple reasons for divorce. Jesus insisted on uh, marital infidelity as being the reason. So it's not that they were had kind of this petty legalism. I think we can honestly say they had a genuine desire to honor God by maintaining religious purity. Um, but they were not happy in this regard because it seemed like Jesus was disregarding the things that were important. And he was treating those who did not value the law as if they were equals. Now, the translation we have today talks about muttering. But another way to translate this would be to talk about grumbling. Um, and I'm going to come back to that point. Um, I also want to mention that in verse 3, it talks about Jesus in response to this grumbling, Jesus told this parable. Now, in reality, there are three parables that Jesus taught. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, which is not included in our reading today, um, often known as the parable of the prodigal. But all of these parables have to do with something that's lost that's of value that is being sought. So in this context, in our, the two parables that we're looking at, despite the fact that they are directed to the Pharisees and they are about the tax collectors and the sinners, one of the things that's interesting is that neither of these two first parables has anything obviously to do with sin. Whatever your opinion of sheep might be, the sheep that got lost was not flagrantly disregarding the Mosaic law. And I personally don't think that a coin has the ability to sin. So neither of these parables is obviously dealing with sin. 
Instead, they're dealing with being lost, which is not directly connected to sin here. They are about not being in the presence of the one to whom they belong and the need to be restored to that presence. They are about the incredible effort that is expended to find these lost objects. In short, they are about the unbelievable grace of God who diligently searches out lost human beings so they can be restored to his presence. It is only after they have been found that repentance is discussed. Now again, remember, these parables are mainly directed to the Pharisees and the scribes, but they are about the tax collectors and of Jesus' embrace of the tax collectors and sinners. The, the Pharisees and the scribes likely believed that repentance was primary, and after repentance had occurred, then God's grace might be experienced. If these sinners had repented first, then they could be accepted. They thought that Jesus had things in the wrong order. He was extending grace before there was repentance. So these parables are meant to teach that God's grace goes to great lengths to pursue the lost, and there is incredible rejoicing when the lost are found. This is exactly what Jesus is doing with the tax collectors and the sinners. He is pursuing them before they have repented. And he is rejoicing when they are found. In this way, the parables are actually like an apologetic for Jesus' own ministry. And they are a challenge to the Pharisees and scribes. The response to sinners being found is great joy, not grumbling. Now, the fact that the parables are directed to the Pharisees and the scribes also explains the comment about there being more joy over the one sinner who repents than the 99 who don't need repentance. The Pharisees and the scribes would have naturally identified with the 99. This parallels Jesus' statement in Luke 5, that the healthy don't need a doctor, and that he did not come to call the righteous but the sinners. And the righteous response to rejoicing is not grumbling. Now, as I said a minute ago, the term grumbling is deliberate. It's used here, and in one of the places in Luke's gospel, and it definitely alludes back to the, gener the wilderness generation who repeatedly saw God's works and mir miraculous provision of water, manna, and quail. Rather than rejoicing, their response was grumbling. This subtle allusion suggests that the Pharisees and the scribes were also in danger of not seeing and recognizing God's presence. Despite what they thought, they too were lost. So what are we to take away from these two parables? I want to ask four questions to kind of orient us. The first question, what does it mean to be lost? As I mentioned earlier, the focus in the parables is on the realization that something of tremendous value is lost, and there is great determination on the part of the owner to find the lost object. Despite the fact, as I've said multiple times, that these parables are about tax collectors and sinners, the emphasis is not on their sin, it's on their worth. They are not in God's presence, and he is diligently searching for them. This is an unbelievable picture of God's grace, which is being demonstrated through Jesus' love and embrace of these sinners. 
And when they are found, there is tremendous rejoicing. Being lost here is not being defined by certain behaviors. Instead, it is understood as not being in the presence of the one to whom one belongs. What an amazing picture of God's love for those who bear his image, who belong to him, but who are not in his presence. This is the love that God has for tax collectors and sinners, and it is the love that he has for Pharisees and scribes. He wants what belongs to be him, he wants what belongs to him to be present with him. So he searches diligently and he rejoices greatly when the lost are found. This does not mean that God does not care about sinful behavior. Jesus embraces tax collectors and the sinner, but he doesn't participate in their behaviors. But repentance follows restoration, not the other way around. So this parable challenges uh, challenges to understand that changing sinful, sinful behavior or repentance is not the first or primary goal. The primary goal is restoration or being found by God. God's grace is diligently searching for the lost. Once found, then repentance is the proper response. This leads us to a second question. Who is lost? At one level, this seems obvious. It's those tax collectors and sinners. But just as this parable was directed to scribes and Pharisees, so also the parable invites us to consider what it means to be lost from different points of view. It's possible to be doing all the right things, like the Pharisees and the scribes, and yet to be lost. I think that's why the lectionary links these parables with the passage that was read from 1 Timothy. I honestly don't think that there is any chance that Paul would have considered himself lost when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. He wasn't lost. He was on a mission to wipe out those people who were leading people astray, who were causing others to become lost. But in an instant, he was found by the risen Lord Jesus, and he came to understand that he was indeed lost. Once found, he repents, as the passage from 1 Timothy shows. So if it is correct that being lost is about not being in God's presence, then these parables invite us to not only consider the obviously lost around us, but to consider the ways in which we ourselves might be lost. Like the Pharisees, where do we have misconceptions about God's grace? Are there prejudices that keep us from seeing the unbelievable nature of God's grace, that keep us from believing that some people are actually worthy of God's grace? Are we putting repentance before restoration, insisting that people do or believe certain things before they're actually restored to Jesus? Now, of course, being lost can be the result of sin. And again, I'm surprised by the connections in the lectionary. Psalm 51 is about restoration, but it's about restoration after David's incredible sin concerning Bathsheba. The psalm gives us the language for restoration when we feel lost from God's presence because of our own sin, although that's not the focus of the two parables we're looking at today. This leads us to our third question. What does God do about the lost? Well, again, this seems kind of obvious, right? 
He drops everything and he diligently searches for them. These parables are beautiful pictures of the value and worth of lost human beings. We were so well reminded that by that about that last week by Dr. Um, uh, Philippe Duval's sermon. Regardless, um, excuse me. <clears throat> and I also want to stress that in light of that, we also are so valuable to God that He set about aside everything to find us. Regardless of how we became a follower of Jesus, whether through a dramatic conversion story or the quiet acceptance of faith of being raised in a Christian home, each of us has a story about being lost and being found by God through his incredible grace. Each of us has a story that affirms our incredible worth and value to God. And this parable, these parables invite us to have the same perspective on the lost around us, to value them, to seek them, to be agents of their restoration. In this way, these parables are wonderful encouragement for evangelism and for not losing hope for the lost in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, and our workplaces. God has not given up on the lost in our midst. He is actively seeking them. As one commentator put it, Evangelism is grounded in the joy of recovery. This leads us to our final question. What's God's response to the lost being found? And again, as we've seen, it's tremendous rejoicing. And we are invited to enter into that joy. For the tax collectors and sinners, this, of course, was good news. But for the Pharisees and the scribes, the lost and God's joy at receiving them meant re-evaluating human categories of worth. It meant a radical re-evaluation of God's grace. It meant seeing the grace of God in work at people, in, at work in people who were not considered worthy of God's grace. And this means seeing the vastness of God's grace. The fact that there were 99 sheep who were safe and are left behind, um, does not diminish the value of those 99. Instead, the shepherd is looking for the one that's lost. And again, I'll, I'll use an analogy I think is important. If you think about a family in a store, maybe three or four kids, and one kid gets lost, the entire focus is finding on the lost child. It has nothing to do with the value or the worth of the others. And that's really another part of what this parable is saying. It's directed to the Pharisees and the scribes. God is expanding his kingdom. And the fact that there's great rejoicing over the repentance of one sinner does not diminish the value of the 99. In other words, the Pharisees and the scribes need not be afraid of God's, excuse me, of God's grace. So these parables invite the Pharisees and the scribes and us to recognize there is no limitation to God's grace. There's no scarcity narrative. There's endless room in his kingdom for every kind of person. And this isn't about numbers. It's about the realization that God works in, in the midst of lives of people with whom we profoundly disagree, who hold very different political convictions and have very different worldviews than our own. So to sum up, God is seeking the lost, those who are not in his presence for whatever reason. And when they are found, there is rejoicing and celebration. 
we are invited to see, to participate in, and to rejoice with God in this great work of finding the lost. Amen.